Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And this episode is brought to you by our patrons. We appreciate everybody's support. It is the main thing keeping us going at this point. And if you'd like to join our Patreon, then please do. You can head over to patreon.com slash I Know Dino and find out what kind of rewards we offer, as well as what our upcoming goals are. This week... We have a bunch of news, including an update on hadrosaur display structures and some new dinosaur discoveries. We also have a quick review of the Claire Deering DLC for Jurassic World Evolution. We have an interview with Tad Galusha, author of the graphic novel Cretaceous. We have Dinosaur of the Day, Riojasaurus. And we have a full-fledged Erictodromius burrow level fun fact. Wow, that's a lot. It is a lot. So let's get into it. As always, we like to start by thanking our patrons who keep the podcast running. And this week, we'd like to thank Kyle, Brendan Kavanov, the Tolbert family, Sean Tanagaki, Remy Rodriguez, Marcy, Rohan, Bradley, Bilal, Scully, Avery, Crispy, Joaquin, Jeb from Arkansas, Aiden James, Albertosaurus, and Alan. And if you've been following us closely, you know that we recently had to buy some new gear to start live streaming, and we wouldn't have been able to do that without the support of our patrons. So thank you all very much. Yeah, thank you. The live streaming was a success. Yeah, literally tens of people tuned in. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's more than you were expecting. It actually is, yeah. It was a lot of fun. But more on that later. First up in Dinosaur News, we have, as promised, an update on Hadrosaur display structures. Specifically, it's an update on how much the Hadrosaur prosaurolophus changed as it grew up. In other words, ontogenetic changes, as paleontologists like to say. And this paper was published in JVP. It was written by Eamon Drysdale and others. Hopefully I'm saying that right. And it's actually an update from the same author's work that was presented on a poster in SVP way back in 2017. And it might be the first time that I saw one of these specimens. It looked so familiar to me, but I'm not sure. I might have also just seen it elsewhere. It's so hard to keep track these days. <laughs> their goal with the poster was to compare Prosaurolophus crests throughout their life as they grew up and see if things changed as they aged. It's kind of a common question when we're talking about things like hadrosaurs or ceratopsians, and we assume that these big frills or these big crests on their head or other features might be due to sexual dimorphism or perhaps all the animals of the species trying to attract one another. Sometimes both animals will have kind of similar display structures to stand out from other species, for example. But typically when that's a case, you only see it in adults because they're the ones that are looking for mates. With the younger ones, they tend to look a little bit more plain or they don't put all this energy into display structures because they're busy putting energy into just try to stay alive. And growing. Exactly. Yeah. So a big part of figuring out if these structures were used functionally or if they were used for just display is to figure out what age that they showed up at. So a quick background on Prosaurolophus, because it is not one of the most popular dinosaurs, the holotype of Prosaurolophus maximus, that's the species name. There's only one species within the Prosaurolophus genus. All the other ones have been synonymized, was described by Barnum Brown just over 100 years ago based on an incomplete skull, but it was still a pretty good find. It's not like some of these where it's just like a single tooth and we're trying to name Troodon based on it or something. But their goal with the paper was to compare Prosaurolophus crests and see if they changed as they aged. So they obviously had to include a lot more new dinosaurs to kind of round out that picture. And fortunately for the authors, since then they found over a dozen more individuals of Prosaurolophus from Alberta and Montana. So we have a pretty good smattering of the puzzle pieces of what Prosaurolophus looked like as it grew up. This paper focuses specifically on three relatively recent finds that are juveniles all from Alberta. And I say relatively recently because they're a lot more recent than 100 years ago, but the oldest one is from 1983 and the most recent one is from 2016. So if you're really closely following Prosaurolophus, you may have already heard of all of these. Sure. No, 2016 wasn't that long ago. No, yeah. I think we were already podcasting back then. Mm -hmm, we were. So there's a chance that we even talked about that one when it got discovered. 
but maybe not because <laughs> by far the best looking one is TMP 1998.50.1 and TMP is the designation for the Royal Tyrrell Museum. And this one reminds me of one of those ancient Roman marble busts. So it's really nicely articulated and it's essentially all the bones between the middle of the back, the tip of the head or snout, and halfway down the forearm. So it's just like one of those busts that kind of has the arms broken off too from age. Nice. If you know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. It also includes skin impressions that are kind of stuck over on the back part by the ribs. All told, the whole block is about 125 centimeters or 4.1 feet long. So it's a pretty good sizable chunk of dinosaur articulation. And I think it just looks amazing. It's one of the coolest looking hadrosaur finds I've seen. In this individual, the skull is about 44% the length of an adult skull. Really, they're comparing it to the largest adult skull known because I guess if you're trying to compare it with how big it could have gotten, you might as well pick the biggest one <laughs> and work back from there. Mm -hmm. The other two individuals have skulls that are about 40% the length of an adult. So they're all kind of in the same ballpark, although maybe the one that's 44% would have been a few months or a year or something older. Or maybe it grew up to be, or would have grown up to be bigger. Yeah, or it was growing faster, who knows. But these 40% grown individuals are the smallest known prosaurolophus individuals described to date. So we've got the full range of the spectrum, if you include the largest adult and then these little guys. And the focus of the paper was on the skull because they're looking at those kind of cranial structures like head crests and other display things that we think hadrosaurs had on their head and not other parts of their body. So it's a little bit different than some of the other recent papers we've talked about with like the stance switching from quadrupedal to bipedal or vice versa and all that kind of stuff that changes when it ages. This is a lot less important to sort of the, the everyday life of the dinosaur. It's more about, you know, selecting a mate kind of thing. Probably not a super functional part of the head, more just a display structure. Right but very important for continuing the species. Yes. They're definitely highly selected for because if you can't mate, then you're not going to have any offspring. and <laughs> Therefore, your unexciting looking head <laughs> is not going to be remembered. But anyway, apparently all three of these finds were preserved in fine mudstone from the bottom of the Western Interior Seaway. And Drysdale told the University of Calgary that it might mean that Prosaurolophus spent a lot of time on the shore, and then when it died, it could have easily gotten washed out to sea and then buried. And then, of course, fortunately, all the other stars aligned mm -hmm. <laughs> so that it actually fossilized without getting eaten, and it got buried in the right kind of rock, and then nothing messed with it for 75 million years. And here we are. Unfortunately, the skin that's preserved on 1998-51 was over its ribs and not its face, because if it had been on its face, maybe we could get some really cool detail oh, yeah. about what kind of structure it had there. But on the ribs, you know, it's basically just like, yeah, it's little bumps, you know, scales. It's still something. Yeah, there weren't any feathers or anything, so it sort of reconfirms the idea that hadrosaurs probably didn't have a lot of feathers. Like I said, the researchers were especially interested in how its crest changed as it grew, and with the 40% sized Prosaurolophus the crest was not very developed. It was basically barely there. And the crest on Prosaurolophus, if you're not familiar with it, is basically just a small bump at the top of the nose. So it kind of reminds me of my nose. <laughs> I've got this big bump <laughs> situation going. It's not a big top. bump, but... Yeah, I mean, there. relative to human noses, it's pretty big. Not big compared to a Prosaurolophus. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have the kind of nose to attract mates? Yeah, so that that I don't think that in humans, large noses attract <laughs> mates. I almost did a fun fact on which animals do use noses to attract mates, but I couldn't find really great sources on it. There are some monkeys, though, for sure, that have like these big red noses. Hmm. So anyway, not so much with humans, though. We got other stuff going on. When they looked closely at the other individuals, they found that the crest grew isometrically, unlike on lambiosaurs with the more impressive head crests. And isometrically, again, basically means that it grows evenly as the animal ages. And that usually means that it's not a good signal for showing when a dinosaur is ready to mate, because if the teenaged one just has a slightly larger one than you know the preteen one that isn't able to mate, 
it's not going to be a great signal. So they're thinking that's probably not what that little crest is for. They do also talk quite a bit about the quote-unquote circumnarial depression, which is basically an area of the skull which seems to sort of sink in <laughs> as Prosar Oliphas ages. Oh, wow. It like goes a little bit concave in this one spot. I was thinking that's the opposite of a human because when the baby is born, right, there's the soft spot that fills in. Yeah, this is almost like if you had, I don't even know how to describe it. It looks so strange on the skull, but like if your forehead kind of caved in a little bit as you got older. Huh. Obviously, wow. their brain isn't right behind their forehead like it is with ours. It's, you know, there's a little more space, but it's a weird, it's super weird. I don't know what's up with it. They did note that that basically is about the same shape for all the prosaroliphus, and it's one of the better characteristics to name it as prosaroliphus because it always has the same characteristic shape to it, although it gets much deeper as the animal ages. So since that's growing allometrically, it might be related to a display structure. And they also found that the snout length grows allometrically, meaning that it really starts to lengthen its more or less nose <laughs> as it gets older. And there were also some other features like with the jaw that changed a little bit faster than its age once it reached sexual maturity. So combining all of that information, they think that it's a safe bet that that crest probably wasn't used for sexual display, but there might have been some sexual display going on with the snout or the nose, basically, rather than that head crest. But since there aren't any big bony growths out of the snout, it does get longer allometrically, but it doesn't really bulge out like we see on lambiosaurs. You know, you see like those huge, crazy head crests, like Parasaurolophus shooting off the back of the head or something. Mm -hmm. There wasn't anything like that going on with Prosaurolophus. So what they're speculating is that maybe there would have been a big soft tissue growth sort of bulging out of the nose as it got older. And it got so heavy that it caused this depression in the skull. Yeah, I'm wondering if that's related to blood supply or if that's even in the right spot for the nose. Because mm. it's, it's a little bit hard to tell exactly where they think the soft tissue would have been compared to where that depression is. So I'm not sure if that's specifically supposed to be related, but maybe, yeah, like it's paving the way for more blood supply or something to the soft tissue. I guess that's possible. And the fact that there's no bony growth, though, for having a big nose makes perfect sense to me because if you took an x-ray of my head, you wouldn't know that I have a huge nose because <laughs> it's all just cartilage. <laughs> you have to see me while I'm alive in order to catch that. And unfortunately, we don't have any living prosaurolophus to look at. <laughs> but long story short, we might have to update at least some of our hadrosaur art with big fleshy noses on their snouts if this pans out. That could be fun. Yeah. I like anything that makes dinosaurs look more weird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's got to be tons, just tons of stuff we don't know about that made lots of them look weirder than we expect. Oh, I'm sure. Even what we do know is pretty weird. Yes. In other dinosaur news, in Chongqing, China, scientists have found a new dinosaur species. It's not yet named, but it's part of a group of specimens that they found that include a theropod and an ornithopod. And these were in the same area as the 18-kilometer fossil wall that's all the fossils are from the Jurassic. The wall was discovered back in 2007. It's got more than 4,000 fossil pieces. Wow. Yeah, I'm sure they're learning a lot. Man, just like China, they just find thousands of items. Mm -hmm. Like it's nothing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Here, like how many news cycles would that hit if we found 4,000 pieces of fossil somewhere? It would be all over the place. But since it happened in China, we're like the only ones that talk about it. <laughs> we found the news item somehow, so other people probably did. Yeah, too. it's on a .cn website, so mm. <laughs> good work, Sabrina. <laughs> well, another thing in China, in Jiangsu province, four dinosaur footprints have been found. This was by a joint China and U.S. research team that published about it in the Geological Bulletin of China. Unfortunately, I couldn't find the paper, but the news item that I found about it said that the sauropod footprints are about 100 million years old, and these footprints, quote, had been mistaken for footprints of Li Sunxiao, who lived around 858 to 894, a famous general in the late Tang Dynasty, which was the year 618 to 907, and the tiger he fought, end quote. This is according to Xing Lida. Three toes from the footprints were lost, so that's why it looks like a human foot. <laughs> The team's working now to protect the tracks. 
I love the different stories of what people interpreted dinosaur tracks as before we knew about dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. Like it's a giant emu or it's a... A giant human. Yeah, but missing two toes because they got attacked by a tiger or something. Well, this one, it looked more human-like because we couldn't see all the toe prints. Oh, Because gotcha. there's a sauropod toe print, but yeah. Next in Nevada, the Las Vegas Natural History Museum has a new exhibit called Dinosaurs Take Flight, and that focuses on Archaeopteryx. You might have guessed that based on Dinosaurs <laughs> Take Flight. Makes sense. It's a traveling exhibit from Silver Plume Exhibitions in the Yale Peabody Museum of Natural History. It has 50 pieces of original artwork, and you can see it from now until September 15th. We might be able to go. Maybe. And before we get into our interview, I want to give a quick review of the Claire Sanctuary DLC for Jurassic World Evolution. So that's what I've been live streaming. I think I've done about five hours of it or so. Have you finished? No, I, w- I really wanted to finish it before we recorded this so that I could give a review of the entire thing. But last night it was getting around like 9 p.m. and it was just, I was running out of steam. <laughs> I couldn't keep going for more than four hours in one stretch. So overall, I think the DLC is pretty good. Claire is actually voiced by Bryce Dallas Howard in the game, which is kind of nice because I don't think Owen Grady is voiced by Chris Pratt. I think it's one of those sound-alike situations. But in addition to that, there are three new dinosaurs. There's an Albertosaurus, Euoplocephalus, and Aranosaurus. So we have the new Tyrannosaur, Ankylosaur, and Hadrosaur. Nice little diversity there. The main other feature in the expansion is a greenhouse, which allows you to cultivate specific plants for different dinosaurs. Oh, so you have a wide variety of herbivores? Yeah. Pretty much. I don't think it gets into any sort of things that the carnivores want to eat. They call it paleobotany. So I think it's all going to be plants. Right. But you you feed the right herbivores that'll attract more carnivores. <laughs> I suppose. But I mean, they're all in cages because you oh, orchestrate it. So yeah, hopefully that doesn't happen. Hopefully it doesn't make the herbivores start smelling extra tasty <laughs> <laughs> so that the T-Rex wants to burst out and go get them. The expansion is basically a new campaign, and it's a little bit frustrating at first because you start out on Isla Nublar, and it's like the volcano starting to erupt, so there's a lot of stuff that's kind of damaged, and they don't let you build any new power infrastructure, so you're stuck trying to cram everything really close to one substation on a map, (laughs) which is kind of frustrating, and something I did not notice for about the first 10 minutes of the live stream, I kept trying to build things, and I was like, I'll build it right next to the power plant, that'll work. Mm -hmm. Nope, that didn't work, tear it down, build it somewhere else, and then eventually I figured out like, oh, yeah, no new substations, okay, here we go. Anyway, keep that in mind if you're playing the game because that's an important point and try to like keep the dinosaur pens such a way that you're not taking up all the space that's useful because there's a power station there. And then the rest of the time you're on Isla Sorna is basically developing a new medicine that apparently you need before transporting them off of Isla Nublar to quote unquote sanctuary which is super weird to me because the entire time there's a volcano erupting and they're acting like, well, we can't transport these dinosaurs because they're sick. They're going to get killed by the volcano. It's like, (laughs) move them first, then we can heal them afterwards. Like, what's with the evacuation priorities? It's very strange. But basically, once you cure them, you get to pick eight of the dinosaurs to move over to quote unquote sanctuary island. And It's sort of like the one that Claire was promised in Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. You know, the one that turned out to be a lie and there was no Sanctuary Island. spoilers. Yeah, it's been like a year. (laughs) (laughs) Except on this Sanctuary Island, you still have to keep all the dinosaurs in cages. So it's not really like the Sanctuary Island that Claire was envisioning. But I digress. So, so far, after about five hours of playing and a couple of live streams, I think I'm getting near the end of the campaign. But I'm not entirely certain. I I doubt there's going to be anywhere to go after Sanctuary. And I think I've got like two out of the four missions done. So it should be like at least two thirds of the way done. And then the dinosaurs live happily ever after. Could be. Oh, one more tip I should give. When you choose which dinosaurs you're transporting off the island, I'm pretty sure they arrive in the same order onto Sanctuary. So I actually picked all three carnivores to transport first, which made it a little bit tricky because then I had to frantically build three different enclosures so the carnivores didn't eat each other. But it was also kind of nice that I picked them because you don't have a lot of money when you start. So if you have 
really exciting carnivores in your camp, then you make more money from the tourism. There's still tourism on the sanctuary island too, by the way, which is kind of strange. So overall, I think it's pretty good. I'll put some links to the live streams that I did in the show notes in case you're interested and missed it the first time. But it's a reasonably good expansion, especially if you're into the paleobotany. That's the main change. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And something that doesn't get talked about too much. Yeah, there's a bunch of plants I've never heard of. And one of them is rotted wood. Ooh. <laughs> and you have to pay like $100,000 to research rotted wood. It's like, how do, what research do I need to do? <laughs> We're on a jungle island, kid. I just go into the woods, pick some rotted wood and throw it in there. You don't want to make the dinosaurs sick. Well, I think it might actually be based on how they discovered that hadrosaurs eat some rotted wood to get like the different insects that eat the wood so oh, okay yeah i think they actually probably did quite a bit of work to figure out the paleobotany section it's kind of cool it sounds like it people we've talked to have worked on the series they all talk about the amount of research that they do yeah and before we get into our interview we want to remind everybody that we almost always have a extra long version of our interviews for our patrons so if you are a patron, make sure you listen to that interview. If you're interested in that, you might want to listen to that and then skip over this version. And if you're not a patron, please consider joining our Patreon. And you can do that at patreon.com slash inodino. And now on to our interview with Tad Galusha. Today we get to chat with Tad Galusha, who is the writer and illustrator of the graphic novel Cretaceous, published by Oni Press, and he's a comic artist and illustrator who also created the webcomic The Backwoods, and he's worked on Godzilla and TMNT Ghostbusters 2. So yeah, Cretaceous, Garrett and I loved it. Oh, The illustrations are gorgeous, and it's really, the storyline's so action-packed. <laughs> it is. Yeah, you know, I, so now I've, I have gotten a few... I had a few fans tell me, I guess, kind of as a critique, they thought it was a little too action packed. And now that I've, I've, I've grown a bit, <laughs> I think they might be right. Um, it does. It, we do have a lot of uh, there's a lot of predation in this book. Let's put it that way. I would probably try and focus on a little bit more of uh, some of the environmental factors or maybe, uh, I don't know, just a few like animal society you know building a little bit more but um but yeah if you like um you know dinosaur on dinosaur uh violence uh <laughs> if it's kid friendly it's definitely for you <laughs> yeah i i mean it's it's effect you know, it's a graphic novel right is that the yeah so i mean with a graphic novel you're not expecting it to be like a long you know plotting storyline like game of thrones where like the whole first book is setting up characters it's usually a lot of action, so it's kind of like if you didn't have a lot of dinosaur on dinosaur crime <laughs> or violence, <laughs> you'd you'd be like, why? Where is it? Why are they? Yeah. Why are they fighting? Yeah, exactly. It'd be a little. I'd be doing the um, the reader a little bit of a disservice. And you know, when I first wrote the book, I particularly picked certain animals in mind to focus on because I wanted to have kind of familiar faces. So, you know, your Tyrannosaurus Rex, your Triceratops, I, I, I wanted those ones to be kind of the standout uh, focal points just, to, you know, for story structure. Just it's a good way of, you know, you give somebody something familiar that they recognize and then you start introducing new characters. And so hopefully if I get to do a sequel to it, I'll get to start kind of delving into different types of animals and maybe start flirting around with, uh, you know, more complex social habits of the animals as well, which that could be really fascinating, I think, especially if you like look at, you know, like birds, you know, like the mating rituals of birds and mm -hmm. stuff, like start working that in. Um, it could get really, really bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That could be really cool. Yeah. I liked that a lot of these dinosaurs have feathers too like yeah i'm glad you brought <laughs> that up because uh you know like when i first sat down and started writing it i hadn't really i guess delved back into dinosaurs since probably the 90s and you know back then it was very um it was, jurassic park was still very acceptable mm -hmm. at least for a lot of people as to what their dinosaurs should look like. And I think it was, oh, what was that book? Was it Backer's book? Was it the Dinosaur Heresies? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, where he was kind of like, you know, 
he was kind of this extreme guy saying like, oh no, we got feathers and they were super active. And he, he's throwing out all these kind of things that now we just take as like a normalcy. Even like, you know, you talk to any just person off the street, you know, that's vaguely familiar with dinosaurs. They're like, oh yeah, you know, they had feathers. But yeah, I wanted to make sure that I, I was try. I tried to depict at least the small theropods completely feathered with like bare legs and stuff. Kind of, you know, like what you'd see like in an emu or an ostrich, some, mm-hmm. some, something familiar to that. Now the T-Rex, the old T-Rex, that was a hot, hot, hot tension point <laughs> for me and the publisher and um, some like early uh, reviewers because, well, as you guys probably know, that. That's got to be one of the most debated things oh, amongst yeah. dinosaur fans. Of, Do oh, the yeah. T-Rex have feathers? Paleontologists, too, for that oh, matter. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I started getting on some of these, like, um, I guess, Facebook groups and just watching these battles unfold. And I'm like, <laughs> like whoa, this is intense. Like, I'd, I was a little nervous as to how it would be perceived because, you know, I went with the naked T-Rex for Cretaceous and... Um, the only reason why I did that was, is it Tom Holtz? Did he just write uh, maybe two years ago a, a book on tyrannosaurs? The Tyrannosaur Chronicles? Yes. David Hone. Okay, that's who it was. David Hone. Terrible with names. <laughs> Me too. Um, I caught a lecture by him on YouTube, and he was talking about the kind of debate. And he said, and I, he had a great point where he, he said they may have had feathers, but as far as we know, if we look at all of the albertosaurs that we found, all of the tyrannosaurs that we found, and you know, and he was referencing to a lot of other like the larger tyrannosaurs, especially in North America. He's like, there's, there's no, there's no, there's no feathers. He's like, we got skin impressions. Doesn't mean he goes, it doesn't mean that they didn't have feathers. But as far as we know at this point, uh, we haven't found any real, real like tangible evidence for it. So. I decided that for me, that was like the breaking point. I was like, okay, uh, I'm not going to completely cover my Tyrannosaur in some type of beautiful plumage, which you see a lot of paleo illustrators doing because it's, you know, it's new. It's interesting. It is, you could do some really cool stuff with it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a little aggressive, especially since, you know, I've heard some topics about like, what what's the purpose of it? You know, is you got a really large animal, uh, we know that like a lot of the ceratopsians and the, you know, hadrosaurs and the sauropods, they don't have any need for this. Um, and a lot of it might do to size. I, I don't know. So like, yeah. you know, you got, you got thermal regulation, you got all these factors that are, are hot, debatable topics. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so I just kind of, I went with, I kept the T-Rex looking familiar and, um, I just, I just kind of went with what we currently know. Now, if they find a T-Rex is like just covered in just beautiful, beautiful feathers, <laughs> um, then uh, I guess in the sequel, T-Rex is going to have a beautiful, beautiful feathers all over his body. <laughs> nice. There you so, go. <laughs> yeah. I feel like recently we've gone, I don't know, not even 180, maybe like 360, what comes after that, like 720. We've gone <laughs> yeah. around so many times of like, it was no feathered in like Jurassic Park. And then we're like, no, it's feathered. And then it was not feathered because they found some skin impressions. But then we found you Tyrannus and it was like, nope, it was feathered again. And then lately you've got like Carr and others saying like, no, look at the mouth around the mouth that we can tell it's scale. So it's not feathered. So we've gone back and forth so many times that really, I think it's almost like with science in general, you go with the consensus, like the previous consensus, unless it's proved otherwise. And it kind of seems like most of the time we're at the non-feathered. So that's the safe bet, at least. And then, yeah, yeah, until (laughs) it's proved, you know, like we find a good one with some feathers, then you'd be like, okay, yeah, now we could switch. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I, I did the, uh, even though there's absolutely nothing to support this, I put, I put like kind of fluffy down all over the, um, the, the the young juvenile tyrannosaurs mm-hmm. that we feature in the book. And I just had this idea of like, oh, maybe as they grow, get bigger and bigger. Because, you know, they, they grow at some crazy rate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, like maybe they just kind of lose this like insulating uh, down. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe you would get kind of a sub-adult that might have a ridge of feathers that's left over from 
when it was young. I, I mean, who knows? We don't, we don't know, but I think that's like, if I had to do, when I do the sequel, which would pick up kind of where this, this first volume leaves off, I, that's what I would do with, uh, I guess our, our focal juvenile Tyrannosaur. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't want to give away too much. Right. Right. Yeah. Cause it's kind of a twist. Yeah, well, we've got a little bit of a twist. There's, it's a constant twist. It's, Actually, yeah, there's yeah, a bunch of twists. I don't know what yeah. it exactly reminds me of, but I've seen similar concept in, I want to say like a Pixar short before a movie or something, where it kind of, you see an action sequence and then like an animal moves through that scene and it becomes the new focal point. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of keeps you guessing on where the story's going. You're like, you never really know who the protagonist is until you get to the end and you're like, oh, that's where yeah. it all makes sense now. It all kind of tied together. Yeah, I, I really, you know, I really try. I looked at a lot as like old nature documentaries because mm. you'd have like a biologist, right? Who'd sit out in the field for a year or two filming animals, and you know, animals. It's so hard to observe animals in their natural habitat just because they cover large distances and they generally know you're there before you know they're there, so mm-hmm. they don't want anything to do with you. And um, you want if you watch those old docs, even the current ones, they they bring in other, I guess we'll say characters, but it's other footage of other animals that they were able to pick up while they were observing this one particular species. And so it gives you a better, I guess, a better idea of the the biome that this, mm-hmm. that your focal point operates in. But at the same time, from you can tell a story while interjecting like small, like tiny little like secular stories that all kind of fold into the main narrative, um, but aren't 100% necessary to tell that story, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And it, it kind of brings up, it's not just dinosaurs in your book. You've got turtles and sharks and pterosaurs and like all the supporting cast that really fill out the rest of the ecosystem really nicely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks. Um, I really wanted to make sure one of the big things I want to emphasize is that I showcase that it wasn't just dinosaur. You know, there, we have reptiles, we have birds. Uh, you know, I, I wanted to get more into like the insects, but there's I had a hard time finding a lot of info on uh, insects, if I'm being honest. So I kind of just glazed over that. I think in the Hell Creek, since you're focused on Cretaceous in North America, I don't think we have a ton of insect stuff. <laughs> yeah. Like you tend to find that in like amber and like more pristine little fossil layers. Whereas in Hell Creek, it's like big sandstone stuff. It's not like right. that kind of microscopic level. <laughs> yeah. If I would have been smart, I would have placed this like taking place in like Manchuria or someplace where there's just so much like diversity in animals and there's just so much coming out of there. That <laughs> I could just get crazy with it. <laughs> yeah. But you, I mean, you squeezed a lot of stuff in there. Oh yeah. I forgot about the insects. You do have a few of those. It's also hard because if your protagonist is a dinosaur, they don't really interact with insects all that much. <laughs> right. You know, it's, you might get, you know, I kept thinking of like, cause I live up in Alaska. So if you see like a moose or bear, especially if they've been busy feeding, like a lot of times they'll just be covered in like clouds of mosquitoes or oh, yeah, eyes and stuff. And so I kind of was like, oh, you know, it would be interesting is like uh, we have that one point, you know, when we first introduced you to the the tyrannosaur. It's bringing back a, a kill back to its nest. I don't know if they did that, but it seem like it'd be an interesting thing to do for the story mm-hmm. and i just wanted it to as it's carrying this animal like especially in like kind of a, a climate is that i would i just i just pictured like just swarms of insects like <laughs> flies and insects just building around even like small birds picking off the insects you know picking off the the carcass because you know you got this massive animal that's carrying uh it, it, like you said it's so big it probably wouldn't even take notice to you know a horse fly or uh, you know, a small, you know, sparrow or something like, why would it, why would it care? You know, what's that going to do it? <laughs> yeah, that's really true though. I like that touch. I noticed you also had another scene where there's a bunch of flies surrounding, uh, like wounded animal. And it, it made me cringe a little bit because they're like, oh no, they're like <laughs> eating it because it's wounded. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, one of the big things that I, it always has irked me in the past is, uh, when I would read these type of books or, uh, you know, even you watch like a, a nature movie, they leave everything real clean and real. They kind of soften the the hard edges that, that are the realities of like animals, you know, just existing in nature. And 
we, we have a tendency to like anthropomorphize kind of nature and make it kind of this like, you know, like, oh, it's this loving, wonderful place. And we have all these beautiful animals running around. And you know, maybe it's just me because I grew up in the Northwest and I live in Alaska. But you spend two days out in the wilderness, you know, like backcountry, and you start realizing very quickly how like if you didn't have all this stuff and you're just by yourself, like nature is this brutal, visceral place. And there's a reason <laughs> why like a lot of animals, if they're not the apex of the, uh, you know, of the, the environment they exist in, their their lifespan is not very long, you know, yeah. unless they're re- real, real crafty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was interesting to see the different, I guess, attack styles, depending on the animal. Yeah, like I've always been, like originally when I went to school, I was a zoology major. And uh, I just quickly found out that I was, I don't have the mind to retain the things you need to retain to get through those classes. <laughs> but I've always had that interest in, you know, biology, zoology, all that kind of stuff. So that I really started kind of leaning on that when it came into like the animals habits and how they would like, okay, if you know, we got a Dakota Raptor and it's going after like a, say a wounded Tyrannosaur, how would they go about this? They're not going to just like go straight up, up to it. Cause it's still, you know, you have the physics of the animal size that that's not going to be a smart move on a Dakota Raptor, which is a big, powerful animal, but still it's dealing with an animal that's so much larger than it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I kind of looking at like, you look at like, um, lions had the way they go after those uh water buffaloes in africa and uh you know it, it those are always just these epic struggles of kind of titans you know and the, the water buffaloes are just relying on like sheer mass and size to deal with uh, these lions that are being pretty smart you know they're setting up traps and kind of blindsiding it because they know that if they're going to take out like a large bull that's the only way they're going to do it you know mm-hmm. if they go straight in they're they're all they're done they're dead um, and so I like to, I like to approach everything in the book is like, there's risks for the animals in every engagement. So even like the dromaeosaurs, when they, you know, they deal with the triceratops at a point and, um, they don't really do very well. Uh, you know, they kind of, even being sneaky and tricky, it's just, you still have, it's like they kind of underestimated this like old injured triceratops right. and, and they found out real quickly, like, oh no, the these injuries might be more superficial than they look. <laughs> uh, we're in trouble. And yeah, so I just, I tried to just, you know, like anytime you're telling a story, especially in comics, you have to to build the actions of your characters based off the physics of the situation and mm-hmm. in, the, in the, you know, the surrounding environment. So I really tried to kind of uh, lean on that while, you know, doing fun dinosaur action. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I like too that you're talking about if and when you do a sequel, I'm saying when now, um, <laughs> you were talking about like doing a different ecosystem because it's great that you did Hell Creek, but Hell Creek is starting to get a little that way too, where everybody kind of right. does the same dinosaurs. Although I like that you brought in some of the lesser known dinosaurs and stuck actually to Hell Creek because a lot of times people will be like, it's Hell Creek plus a brontosaurus and a velociraptor <laughs> and like and the other ones that people know about from the other parts of the world <laughs> i did i did do a little fudgery there's if you look there's a double splash page i i don't remember it's pretty far back in the book and i did throw is it an alamosaur the, the big sword oh, yeah. i did throw it in the background because i was like well They've found so few of these and know so little about it. <laughs> Maybe it, I mean, it's big enough. I guess it could kind of go wherever it wanted. It could go up and down Laramidia. Nothing would really stand in its way except for maybe a mountain range or something. That's one of the things I want to do for the sequels. I want to, um, well, I'll just, I'll just, I have a, I actually have like a rough outline. I'll just say it right here. Why not? Spoilers, yeah. more spoilers. If it does come to fruition, then, uh, good on the listeners they get a little uh, sneak peek <laughs> the whole concept was you know the book ends uh this first time ends with the juvenile tyrannosaur kind of like left into the uh the world to make his way if he if possible and uh the sequel would kind of pick up several years in the future where it had survived that vulnerable state in life and is now kind of like at a point where it needs to start making its way 
in the world, you know, as like establishing itself as a, you know, maybe a dominant predator in a region. So like a territory. And, um, I wanted to start it off with it. It basically just gets pushed out of the area that it's occupying where there's mm. already like a Tyrannosaur family that's all set up and they're, you know, big mama's just kind of like, no, not happening. You need to leave now, you know, or we're going to eat you. <laughs> and so I, I wanted to have it go south because you see this with mountain lines actually in North America where they'll have, uh, they'll track an, a mountain line that'll go, you know, from Canada and take the Rockies all the way down to Denver wow, or all the way down to like the Mexico border. And so I was like, okay, I should apply that here. And um, so basically we have this kind of like sub-adult, young adult tyrannosaur that goes all the way down to like maybe Texas, Mexico region. And then we'd have, uh, you know, alamosaurs and a whole different uh, arrangement of animals that are a little bit different than like you're saying, like the Hell Creek region. Mm-hmm. And there, I, I, the whole premise would be is because it's all of a sudden we have these gigantic titanosaurs that can get massive, especially like now they've, with recent findings, they think that what the, the Alamosaur got pretty big, right? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so I was like, okay, a T-Rex could not, especially kind of a younger adult, could not take on one of these by itself, oh, sure. yeah. especially if they're in a herd. So I was like, well, what, what do young male animals do, uh, like young male predators? And I started, again, looked at lions, and you'll see like on the Serengeti that young lions will team up. And they'll form their own kind of like pseudo pride. So you'll mm-hmm. have like eight young males that are just waiting till they can, uh, you know, I guess take over a pride someplace else or establish a territory once they're big and strong enough. And so I wanted to do that same dynamic where we have this young Tyrannosaur. He kind of out of necessity teams up with uh, or packs up with a, a group of young Tyrannosaurs. And then they start... Um, you know, that's, and then things get real interesting from there. You know, they, they're hunting together through trials and tribulations. And then, uh, you know, we have certain members that, uh, are becoming a little bit bigger, a bit more dominant. And so we get some kind of, uh, competition for like, you know, mating rights, territory rights, and we just go from there. So yeah. that, that would be volume two. And it would be a bit more detailed, like on the, uh, ecological and biodiversity side mm-hmm. of things, but also telling a bit more interesting of a story that's also kind of based in like what we see now with animals, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That sounds really cool. It does. I'm not a, I'm not a biologist or a paleontologist. <laughs> well, that's how a lot of these studies are too, is they'll, you learn what you can from the fossils and then you make comparisons to modern animals. Yeah, for sure. And right. Behavior right. That way. Yeah. I want to give you a pass at Alamosaurus, though, because the only named titanosaur from North America, and basically like one of the only late Cretaceous sauropods we know in North America is Alamosaurus. So in a way, we now think that like a lot of different dinosaurs are just we're all calling them Alamosaurus because we can't tell them apart from the few bones we have. So the fact that you called it Alamosaurus, it's like at this point in time, there's pro- there might be something up there that right now we're calling Alamosaurus and later on we'll be like, oh, you know, we should split this out in Alamosaurus and we'll call that one like Montano Titan or something and <laughs> right. all of these different names. But at this point, like Alamosaurus as a Cretaceous Titanosaur, it's like that's a pretty good mm-hmm. broad category. It's almost like a category rather than a specific dinosaur. Okay, good. That's That makes me feel much better about myself. <laughs> <laughs> But also, you you definitely need to make a sequel now. We want to know. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. I I'm definitely putting in the. Uh, I'm probably they're probably getting sick of me. I'm I'm pestering <laughs> them so much. Hey guys. Hey 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 hey. Look at look. You want to look? I got ideas. Yeah. <laughs> just uh, send them a sketch like every single day. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. You just hand them until they're like, fine. Just just make it. Leave us alone. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's well. you guys know. Anything like if you want to if there's something you really want to do, you have to be you have to be your biggest kind of cheerleader and you have to be a bit like proactive and a bit aggressive with it, even if people don't sometimes people don't want to take the time to listen to you. But it's the only way like it's, I mean, we I, I negotiated for this book for years trying to get people just meeting after meeting, trying to get someone to pull the trigger. 
And even when they did, it was, you know, just to get it past the handshake agreement. That wasn't that that took years in itself as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I mean, that's not really dinosaur based, but there you go, people. If you got an idea for something, just you got to go after it. You have to. Yeah. Yeah. It's good to hear. And that's, I think, the biggest reason why you got to do something you love, because if you don't love it, you're not going to have that energy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And like with this to get for me to be able to do the book. They took about maybe nine months trying to find like a, a colorist and because I'm colorblind. So I, I'm kind of like, I, if I can avoid doing colors, I, I would like to do that. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, like there were just, they had some really good prospects, but nobody that I felt had like an organic feel. Um, they all kind of had a bit of a cartoony comic book coloring feel to it, which I was like, that's ah, not going to work for this book. We need something kind of kind of dirty, kind of gritty. So mm-hmm. it came down to me going, okay, here's some sample pages. This is what it'll look like finished. And literally that's what um, I sent in the pages, I think at like probably six that night. And then four hours later, I had a contract like ready to go. Like, okay, yeah, <laughs> yep, sign here. And then we'll, uh, then you can start making the book. Nice. Yeah, yeah. I just, uh, you know, it was more work than I wanted to take on, but now that's all I want to do. Uh, I don't, I wouldn't, <laughs> Yeah, I wouldn't want to bring in somebody else to to help me out with the colors or anything. It's kind of funny how that works, right? Yeah. So being colorblind and draw, how do you manage that? Is there like some software you can use or something to like make it yeah. more clear? I I just have I do all the line art is done in ink and then I color it all digitally just on the computer so that way I can you know, they've got kind of like uh, they've got color grid systems that are set up so you can see where you are at, like if it's oversaturated or, mm. if, you know, uh, using like a kind of like a digital color wheel. I can see like, OK, I think I'm drawing blue, but really it's purple so I can adjust it. You know, same with like greens and reds, like greens and reds are a nightmare for me at this point. So mm-hmm. and there's a lot of green in this because, you know, we got a lot it's of a uh, fair amount of red, too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We got red, we got green. There's there's a lot of colors to manage in that. So uh, yeah, if I wouldn't have had the, I guess, some digital assistance, I would have been in big trouble. <laughs> yeah, mistaking blue for purple could make it look real goofy in a in a hurry. <laughs> oh, yeah, we could have some real real purpley uh, uh, looking waves rolling in <laughs> on the shore, which wouldn't necessarily be good. <laughs> yeah, or accidentally draw like Barney. Oops. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. So one of my favorite parts of your book too is something that you probably wouldn't guess being that I'm a dinosaur fan, but when you have the Quetzalcoatlus barfing out the baby Troodon <laughs> or whatever it is that it ate, yeah. I love that picture so much. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, you know, I, I I just kept thinking about birds and how kind of Birds are pretty gross, and uh, <laughs> especially when you watch them like feed their young. And I kept thinking, like, I need to incorporate this in there somehow. And so I thought the old Quetzal just kind of fit the the role for that. Just I really wanted to. Okay, we I want to establish that it had young at some point, and uh, I really wanted to do something where like it would eat something small, like either a small mammal or a small dinosaur. And then just regurgitate it out <laughs> uh, for because you know essentially that's what birds do. You know? Yeah, yep. you know like it's as gross as it is, but it's it's a reality. The babies and, look so excited, <laughs> right? Yeah, like oh man, it's Christmas has come. Oh, yeah. here we go. They're like yeah. fighting over it. <laughs> yeah, I I really um I really thought that some of the the gross factors of the book were kind of gonna we're gonna end up getting edited by the publisher, but they were like. If anything, they're like, oh, this is great. Like there's a, a sequence on the beach where I think the Albertosaurus has been feeding on like a carcass and then they move oh, yeah. off. Mm-hmm. And uh, then the, the, the Rex that's kind of stalking them, it comes out and it checks out their kill. And then like I have it basically pee all over it because mm-hmm. that's, you know, like that's what animals do with like marking stuff. And it's just like the ultimate aggressive uh, yeah. that a dinosaur can do without trying to kill each other. <laughs> I know? noticed that too. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh, it's making a statement. <laughs> yeah. I was like, yeah, I really wanted it to be a statement. I thought for sure. I was like, oh, there's no way they're going to let me do this. This is totally, I'm going to turn in these pages and they're going to be like, you can't do this, Tad. You got, you have to edit this out. <laughs> um, but, you know, they, they looked at it and they were like, Oh yeah, this is something that we see. We see our dogs do at the park to each other every day. So this makes total sense. <laughs> and I was I was so glad they made that connection. Yeah. So that and then the the puke for the babies scene. Uh, those both 
were kind of the the gross out factors that um yeah they were they were approved and adored and uh, <laughs> i just gotta think of some more gross things to do in the other book <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i mean those were both good examples too of kind of showing something emotional without actually showing words too because mm-hmm. like how are you going to show that this t-rex is on like a rampage you can show it you know walking towards an animal it's upset with but if you show it you know like marking its territory that's like taking it up a notch yeah right right yeah and you know i think that there becomes this disconnect i think a lot of times is that and as much as i want to like the current jurassic world movies they kind of get away from it, except for maybe with the raptors, is they really make a disconnect of like, these are kind of thinking, an- you know, they're, a lot of them are thinking, an- especially the predators. Predators tend to be fairly intelligent, mm-hmm. you know, pretty cognitively aware of what's around them, what's going on. And so I really wanted to make sure that I gave the animals some type of personality, even if we don't see it a ton. There, there needed to be some element of it. Uh, or like when, you know, there's the, you know, I, the one of the first things I did in the book is I had the, I wanted to have a point where the T-Rex and the Triceratops look at each other. Like they have this kind of face off Hmm. and, you know, stereotypically it would be, okay, now we're going to get this battle of the Titans. And I love the idea of them coming across each other and being like, this is not worth my time. (laughs) Neither of the, you know, for both of us, there's too much high risk. Why would I deal with trying to, you know, I got some delicious uh, Parasaurolophus babies over here that I can pick off. Why would I deal with this giant Triceratops man? You know what I mean? Just, mm-hmm. and that's kind of how animals operate uh, in the wild. You know, like grizzly bears don't necessarily go after full-grown moose; they go after their babies. You know, like right now, that's what's going on up here in Alaska. It's like, you know, that's the thing to look out for is. Uh, a bear is going after baby moose. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get between a bear and a baby moose. <laughs> Pretty much, right? <laughs> so if our listeners wanted to learn more about you and your work, where's the best place for them to go? The best place to, I guess, see what I'm up to is uh, tadgalusha.com. That's my website. And then also I'm at Tad Galusha on Twitter and Instagram. I usually post, uh, especially on Instagram, I'm posting pretty often. Yeah. And then if, you know, if people are interested in picking up a copy of Cretaceous right now, I think the best place to get it is Amazon. Uh, Usually they have some pretty good deals going on. When the book came out, it was occupying that niche, that top seller's niche, you know, in dinosaur children's books. Mm -hmm. So, um, they somehow there there is usually discounted. So uh, I think right now it's you can get it for like five dollars off its cover price, something like that. There's usually some type of sale going on over at Amazon, so that would probably be the best place best place to get it fastest at least. <laughs> awesome, nice. Well, yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us and talk about your work. And we are very excited. We're counting on you now to make the sequel. <laughs> awesome. No, thank you for having me. This has been a blast. Like a I, like I told you before we recorded, I, I've been listening since like episode two or three. <laughs> and so I've pretty much listened to every episode at some point. Oh, man. Um, so <laughs> it was uh, it was kind of cool, like actually uh, getting to be on an episode, you know, as a guest. That's that was, that was pretty awesome, I feel. So thank you for having me. <laughs> oh, thank Thanks. you. Thanks so much, Tad, for chatting with us. As we mentioned, we really enjoyed Cretaceous and we're looking forward to the sequel which you've promised us, sort of. <laughs> We're going to hold you to it anyway. <laughs> and now for our dinosaur of the day, Riohasaurus, which was a request from Dinosaur 4602, so thanks. It was a sauropodomorph that lived in the late Triassic in what is now the La Rioja province in Argentina in the Los Colorados Formation. The genus name means Rioja lizard, and the type species is Riohasaurus incertus. Incertus means uncertain in Latin. Many individuals have been found, maybe up to 20. Riohasaurus grew to be about 33 feet or 10 meters long, and it had a long neck and tail. It had bulky legs that were dense, they're very large for an early sauropodomorph, and it had hollow cavities in its vertebrae. It had four sacral vertebrae instead of three, like other early sauropodomorphs. Riohasaurus was probably slow, and scientists used to think that it walked on four legs, but could rear up on its hind legs. Its forelimbs and hind limbs are similar in length. But in 2016, Scott Hartman found that Riohasaurus was probably bipedal because the hands were relatively straight back and the shoulder girdle was mostly immobile. 
Riohosaurus may have been cathomeral based on the scleral rings found in Riohosaurus compared to modern birds and reptiles. It's thought to be related to Melanorosaurus, a basal sauropodomorph that lived around the late Triassic, but studies in Bristol University in England found some key differences, such as longer bones in the neck. Both were large for their time. Riohosaurus was named in 1967 by Jose F. Bonaparte. No skull was found with the holotype, but Jose Bonaparte and Jose Pumares described a nearly complete skull in 1998. The skull was found on an exploratory trip in 1986. From the back, the skull looks pretty narrow. Both Bonaparte and Pumaris found the skull had conical teeth. They also said the tooth row in the lower jaw is on the internal side of the jaw, quote, and its external border or cheek extends to the anterior portion of the dentary, which suggests the presence of thick lips, end quote. Interesting. Yeah. Don't hear about lips too often. They were talking about them way back in 1998. Mm-hmm. They also found some shared derived characters between Riohosaurus and Coelophysis, which may mean that they had a close common ancestor. They had similar height and elongation of the skull, as an example. Hmm. Riohosaurus is the only known Riohosaurid from South America. Other sauropodomorphs have been found in the Los Colorados formation, though, including Coloradosaurus and Lessomsaurus. And our fun fact of the day is a doozy. We can definitively say you went down the Erectodromius burrow. Oh, yeah. Multiple. It was a branching Erectodromius burrow. Oh, interesting. (laughs) And really, it is all thanks to the Biodiversity Heritage Library, which is an online place that cataloged a lot of really old articles and posted them for everybody to read. Specifically, what I was reading was the 11th edition of the Proceedings of the Zoological Society of London from 1843. Wow. And it is the place where Sir Richard Owen named the moa and gave it a scientific name, Dinornis. So once I found out there was this name Dinornis, I was like, what's the deal with Dinornis? Why does it almost sound like dinosaur? And it's really interesting that it's also Richard Owen. And he named it just one year after naming Dinosauria, And it starts with the same thing. He had dino on the brain. I think so, because he named dinosaurs in 1842. And then one year later, he's unknowingly reusing dinos (laughs) to name another dinosaur. But he didn't realize it was a dinosaur at the time, obviously. Oh, that's what you mean by unknowing. I was thinking he he knew dino. (laughs) He knew what dino was. Yeah. But he didn't realize it was another dinosaur. Right, right. Otherwise, he could have just immediately lumped it in and the moa could have been the fourth named dinosaur. (laughs) Well, it all worked out. Yeah. So a little bit about this rabbit hole. First, the publication, the 11th edition of the Proceedings of the Zoological Society of London, was published by Richard Taylor, and that was nine years before Richard Taylor and William Francis formed Taylor and Francis. Oh, I didn't realize it had been around that long. Yeah. Well, he, yeah, so it was formed in the 1850s, and he was still alive, like, doing the publishing himself at the time, which I just thought was really interesting because tons of scientific journals are published by Taylor and Francis now. Also, the meeting was only seven years after the HMS Beagle had returned with all of Darwin's work on it. And there are references to the HMS Beagle in the proceedings from that year where they're describing some new species (laughs) within it, even on the same page as the MOA, which is kind of fun to see. And the other cool thing about the proceedings is that they're written kind of like a play-by-play of what happened. It's almost like a stenographer or something describing the proceedings (laughs) of it. Whereas what I'm used to reading are just like a series of abstracts Mm. that are prepared by the authors and they're a lot drier and things like that. So they were taking the minutes. Yeah, basically. So they have all these descriptions like, and then Owens went on to describe why he thought they went extinct. And (laughs) like he eschewed the idea that it was such and such. (laughs) It's really fun to read. But back to the moa. So Owen had previously called the moa Megalornis, but then found out that it was previously used by somebody else. So it was kind of like a occupied name. So he had to come up with something new. So he updated it to Dinornis. And that's what happened in this paper. So he explained that Dinornis was a large struthius bird, quote, of a heavier and more sluggish species than the ostrich, end quote. (laughs) which I think is a fun description and also a pretty good description of what dinosaurs might have been like. And then Owens gave the same etymology of dinos, translating it as prodigious, 
which basically means impressively large. And then he combined it with Ornus for bird. And so when you combine it, you get an amazingly large bird, which I think etymologically would have been a much better name than dinosaur for dinosauria because they basically are enormously large birds <laughs> and have nothing to do with lizards like dinosaur implies. And then while I was in this Erichthodromius burrow, I did a side tangent into finding the original article where he named Dinosauria, which I got somewhere else. But in 1842, he translated Dinos as fearfully great, which is basically a synonym of prodigious and definitely not terrible. So I think a better two-word translation for dinosaur is prodigious lizard over terrible lizard. Or fearfully great lizard. Yeah. Yeah. Or you could describe prodigious in better terms if you wanted to like crazy huge or <laughs> whatever. <laughs> so when we were talking about you going down this Erictodromius burrow, I thought that it was a rabbit hole, like we often say, but also specifically about Erictodromius. Oh, no. It's not literally an Erictodromius burrow. All right. <laughs> You're just bringing that term back. Yes. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> I just love, though, that he named something Dinornis right after Dinosaur and had no idea that they were related in any way. <laughs> yeah. That's so cool. Or maybe he had talked to Huxley and had an inkling. Who knows? I didn't think they got along. I don't because, think he got along with anybody. Yeah, because he didn't get along with, I don't think he got along with Darwin. And Huxley was like a big fan of Darwin. But, mm. yeah. Just because you don't get along doesn't mean you didn't hear him sometime. <laughs> <True>. <laughs> And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And also consider becoming a patron and get bonus content and all sorts of goodies. That's at patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again. And until next time. Good day.